I want to invite you um, to the book of Revelation. And we're wrapping up a series this morning. If you're joining us, um, if you've been here for the first two weeks of the series, um, this is kind of the big payoff. We're going to have some fun this morning. If you're not, I think it'll still make sense. But um, I want to invite you to Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven between Michael and his angels, fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God And the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. This Christmas story is probably one you have not seen illuminated on front yards in your neighborhoods. But it is another birth narrative not like Matthew or Luke's version slightly different angle. I have a friend, and about 15 to 20 years ago, her husband passed away from cancer. And she said there were these moments where we would walk down the halls of the hospital, going into chemo, going into treatment, watching him sit there and suffer and struggle and pain. And knowing that she could do nothing to help. And after this battle, over years and years, finally her husband passed away. Later on, she was able to remarry. And she said there were times when the church she was with, they would visit the hospital. This exact same hospital that she walked down the halls of with her husband. 
And they would visit the hospital and they would walk into rooms and they would see families rejoicing and celebrating over the birth of a child. Where now there is joy and laughter and celebration. In a place just several years before was filled with tears and grief and sorrow. And she said, it's so amazing that I could walk into the halls of this hospital and I could walk into these rooms, rooms that I had been in before, and sit there with families celebrating. Yet the whole time, the walls and the pictures they recounted and the, the memories they brought back and the smells that would fill my nostrils were all reminders of visits and times in a hospital with my husband who was passing away. These halls that were once filled with sorrow and pain and hurt are now filled with joy and gladness. And I think each and every one of us can probably in some way or another relate to those journeys through the hospitals. Because there are moments where we are in pain and we are hurting. And there are also these moments where we're celebrating. And it's possible that these moments can occur in the exact same place. Where the joy and the celebration and the excitement quickly turns to sorrow and grief and pain. And it seems like life, there is this back and forth. These times of the celebration, these times of sorrow. These times of joy and exuberance. And these times of mourning. And I think wrapped in this is a theology and an understanding that most of us, most people, I think, in this world, whether they were to believe in Jesus or not, could relate to and understand that this is how the world functions. This is how the world works. And for us, as we follow Jesus as believers, we understand that the world is ordered in a certain way because of a curse. There's a song we sang earlier, and it's called Joy to the World. And I am not going to sing it for you. But there is a verse to it that most of you have probably never heard. It's not even, I don't think, in our actual hymnal. But I want to read you, not sing you. I, I have a disease. I'll, I'll tell you this real quick. I have a disease where in my head there is this tune and this melody. And it is crystal clear and beautiful. And then for some reason when it comes out, it tends to go in a different direction. So I'm going to read you these words. No more, let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. But he comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. 
And I think there's this question, well, how far is the curse found? How far reaching is the curse? And maybe even the better question, if you aren't real sure, what is the curse that we're speaking of in the first place? The Bible begins with this story in Genesis of man and woman created by God in this garden. And there is this shalom, this peace, this presence of God where man and woman are at home and they're right with God and things are as they are supposed to be. It is a world without pain and sickness and sorrow and death. And then a voice shows up in this paradise. A voice who simply asks a question. Did God really say? Did God really say that you are not supposed to eat from this fruit? And then out of the question comes an accusation. Well, God didn't really mean that. In fact, God's holding out on you, and God does not want you to be like him. The serpent makes an accusation. And man and woman are left with this choice where they're going to listen to the voice of God or where they're going, going to listen to the voice of accusation against God. And they choose to do their own thing. And then they pick up the voice of accusation themselves. Because after God confronts them, what's the very first thing that the woman says, or the man says? It was this woman who you put here with me. She Gave me something to eat. And then the woman, turning again, says, no, it was the serpent. And the voice of accusation from the serpent becomes the voice of man and woman in the garden. And they start to make accusations against one another. And so out of this comes a curse. In Genesis 3, verse 14, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then to the woman he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to the man, to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you will return. One of the direct 
repercussions of sin was pain. And this pain would enter the world. And I think it's safe to say we see the effects of it every single day. You see the effects of it as you walk halls of hospitals and you sit with people who are grieving and hurting. You see it as you turn on the news and you hear stories of fighting and wars. You, you see effects of it as little children struggle with diseases who are taken too quickly from this earth, it seems. But then, in the midst of the darkness of these days, it seems like there are rays of hope that seem to spring up in the darkness. And in the midst of the pain and the suffering, there are moments of hope and gladness and joy. And on the other side of Eden, there's this new world, a thing, a new order of things. The world as it should be has been reordered in the image of the Satan. And his name simply means the accuser. And accusation now becomes the way the world works. And in the midst of the accusation, there is this fighting, this warring that continues to go on between man. And it's seen in the very first story on the other side of the garden. Cain is angry with his brother. And he sees him not as a brother, but as other and enemy. And he kills him. And he flees and he begins to build his own city. And every city since is formed in the image of Cain. But then something miraculous happens. And it's a story that we gloss over time and time again. Because between Cain and Abel and the story of Noah, there are some chapters in there that we kind of forget. But it talks about these generations of people that grow up. And there's one generation that jumps out out of the midst of these genealogies. And it's about a guy named Enoch. And there's this phrase that occurs in this story as he's going through the genealogies, and it's Enoch walked with God. And I know, I know, we just glimpse over it because it's the genealogies and we're just trying to get to the next part. But the phrase is so significant. Because there is a place that God walks. If you remember back to the garden, there's man and woman walking with God in the coolness of the day. That is the place where God walks in the garden. But after man and woman sin and they're put outside of the garden, the promise would be that they're separated from God. And it seems like hope is lost. But then this story of Enoch appears. And it says, Enoch walked with God. Which begs the question, how is it that Enoch walked with God? If the place that God walks is the garden. 
See, one of two things had to have happened. Either man was allowed back in the garden, or, or God left the garden to pursue man. And then God calls this man named Abraham. And Hebrews tells us that this man was searching for a city. And it was a city that he never could actually see. Although he caught a glimpse of it, he never really got to experience it. But the whole time as he's journeying, as he's going, he's searching for this city and he knows it's there. And in the midst of the curse, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the world of pain and sorrow and hurt, there is hope that there is something better. And in the midst of this world, we see the world created, recreated in the image of the dragon. The dragon who lied in wait wanting to devour the child the moment the child was born. And understand, this woman giving birth in Revelation is not mother of Jesus, Mary, woman. This is representative mother of all creation, who is continually birthing out children, who this Satan, this dragon, is seeking to devour And time and time again, this Satan devouring these children, and now comes this one child. This one child who's different from every other child. This child will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This child will sit on the throne of his father David. This child will be different from all those that the dragon has devoured. This child will conquer the beast. This child will bring a renewed hope to humanity. In the midst of this world where the voice of the accuser seems to have the last word. Where the voice of accusation seems to win the day. Where the voice of blame is the prominent voice. Where fingers are pointed and blame is cast. He's created this culture, this counterculture from the garden of idolatry and evil and chaos and death. And he's done so with the voice of accusation. And he's seducing these kings to come to this place we talked about last week of Armageddon. And Armageddon is not an inevitability. Inevitability. Is that right? Is that right? There we go. Armageddon is not inevitable. There is another way. Follow the beast and you arrive at Armageddon. Follow the lamb and you arrive at new Jerusalem. There is a new and better way. And this recreated world, recreated around the curse, recreated in the image of the Satan, where the dragon is seducing and alluring and leading people 
to their death. And in this cosmic battle for supremacy, you have a lamb. A lamb who looks like he has been slain. Who is covered in blood and his throat is slit, but yet somehow he's still alive. Somehow he's still living. And you have a baby born into the midst of the curse. The curse where pain seems to get the last word. Where it seems the only ending is the hospital room. Where it seems like there's not another side. Where it seems like joy does not get the final word. Where peace does not get the final word. But sorrow and darkness wins the day. And it's into this world that there is news of a birth of a baby who is going to bring this new reign of peace into the world. And with the coming of Christ comes the promise that the curse will be crushed. That the curse that was so prominent, the curse that had the final word, will be no more. That promise from Genesis that his head would be crushed, although he will strike your heel, would be fulfilled. So I want you to imagine with me this world of the seven churches here in Revelation. And you're going to have to really use your imagination because it is a world of political instability. Imagine political instability and arguing and fighting, a world of economic uncertainty, a world where it seems like those in power always win. It's into this world that these seven little minority churches in the midst of this massive global empire are given these words of encouragement, these words of rebuke, these words encouraging them to remain the faithful witnesses of the Lamb who was slain. Because the Lamb who was slain will conquer the beast. And the Lamb who was slain will get the final word. And will bring hope where there is darkness. Because it will seem, when the dragon is roaming the earth, it will seem like darkness always wins. Like darkness gets the final word. Like the dragon is the person in power. And it's into this that we learn one of the most powerful truths of this story. That darkness is not the place where grace goes to die. 
But darkness is the place where grace comes alive. See, it's into the darkness of this small little town of Bethlehem that a child is born, a promised Messiah who would bring peace and healing to this world that was broken. Grace comes alive. You look at the promise to Zechariah, to John, his son. He says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness, in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, I think it's in the darkness of night that we catch the most glorious glimpses of grace. It's in those difficult times in hospital rooms, in hospice care, those difficult nights where we're wondering how we're going to make ends meet, those times of uncertainty when our marriage seems like it's on the rocks, those times when we're stressing out over our children or our job. It seems like in those moments of darkness, we see these beautiful rays of grace that seem to grace our path, that seem to light the way. See, here's my guess. At some point this year, you have been through a time of uncertainty and pain and loss and difficulty. And in those moments, it seems really difficult to see that there could be the possibility of something better. That there could be the possibility of a new world right here in the midst of this one that's passing away. Those moments like Lucy last week walking through the wardrobe and stepping out into this snow and this eternal winter that can't seem to go away, this world that was right there the whole time and had no idea. And I think the problem stems from our imagination. Our imagination that struggles to see the possibility of something else beyond what's right in front of us. Because in those moments, as darkness closes in and as pain increases, it seems like the whole world revolves around us. It seems like our world is the world, and we are left without hope. 
And it's into this darkness that a world is reborn. It, it was Nicodemus who asked Jesus, He asked Jesus, How do we get to the Father? And one of the things that Jesus tells him, he said, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That new life always comes out of birth. And it's interesting that this story, this dragon waiting for the child to be born. There's a woman who's in the pain of childbearing. In this painful world of the curse. This painful world where death gets the last word. This great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Jesus is born out of pain, into a world of pain, surrendered to pain. To destroy the root of pain. Jesus is birthed out of pain. Into pain. Surrendered to pain. To destroy the root of pain. And what was the root of pain? The curse. The curse that would be crushed by this child. And with the curse crushed by the coming of the Christ, there is a new world. And John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now listen, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Because the old order of things, 
the, the way the world was recreated in the image of the Satan, the way the world was reordered around this curse, it will be no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And you have to remember that this revelation is a drama. It is written as Greco-Roman theater, and it is this play that is being performed. It's meant to be read out loud. And it comes to this climax as the dragon has been hurled into the fiery lake, and you've been given the choice Will you follow the lamb into New Jerusalem or will you follow the beast to Armageddon and end up in the lake of fire? You choose. But here in the midst of this world of pain that is passing away, this world where the curse seems to have the final word is this proclamation that was read long ago in this drama. As the writer says, Behold, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our God and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. Amen. See, in this world, this world of revelation, it seems like Pharaoh gets the last word. It seems like Artaxerxes and King Darius get the final say. It seems like Augustus and Nero and Caligula and Stalin and Hitler, they get the final word. But let me tell you the good news. In the end, Pharaoh dies. And in the end, Artaxerxes dies. And Darius dies. And Caesar dies. And Nero and Augustus and Caligula, they die. And Stalin and Hitler, they die. And Jesus lives. There. There is the good news of the coming of the king. That into the darkness of night, a baby is born. And this baby is the hope of the world. This baby is going to come and bring a reign of peace. And you are given the choice. You're given the invitation. Who will you follow? Will you follow the beast and wind up in Armageddon, the lake of fire? Or will you follow the lamb and find yourself in New Jerusalem, this bejeweled city where the lamb who was slain reigns on the throne. And the proclamation is proclaimed throughout this new world.
that the kingdoms of our God have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Father, today we surrender our lives to the Lamb. We surrender our lives and we follow you into New Jerusalem. Knowing that the curse is crushed under your feet. And Father, that you sit enthroned, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and creation waits in expectation, longing for the day when everything is made new. Father, as followers of the Lamb, we have surrendered our life to you. We have given you everything that we have. Father, help us to resist the voice of accusation and blame. That is the voice of Satan. And Father, surrender to the spirit of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who is a voice of peace. May we follow the Lamb into new Jerusalem. And may the hope of this child, birthed into the brokenness, bring hope and healing. In Jesus' name, amen.